Let's pray before we start. Lord, we do ask that you'll make your word very clear to us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just give us great clarity of mind. Lord, I pray that you'll enable me to speak clearly and that everyone here will just receive your word. Because, Lord, we need to know the truth. It's, it's your truth that makes us free, as Jesus said. Father, we, we just do ask now that your Holy Spirit will come amongst us and be our teacher. And that tonight people will just be blessed by your truth. And, and that we'll all learn things that, that we didn't know before. Because, Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, okay, number 21 in our salvation series. Now, let's, let's just recap, where are we, alright? We're looking, we're in the third phase of this series, we're in what I've called future salvation. So we're saying, right, we're Christians, we've been saved because we know Jesus, what does that mean for our future? And we've been covering what happens when you die, and things that are going to ha be happening in the future, leading up to the end of the world, the end of the universe, and then finally the eternal state. And by the time we finish this series, we'll have covered all that. Now last time, what we were looking at was two studies, in fact, about the rapture, the time when Jesus will come and take us, his church, back to heaven. Now, we've seen that we will be there for seven years, and what's happening on earth during that time are the seven years of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, the time of the rise of the Antichrist, the time of God's judgments being poured out upon the earth, and that lasts for seven years leading up to the Second Coming. Now, We've had a look at the Great Tribulation very, very quickly last time, and also we saw the really nice fact that none of us will be there because the church will not go through the Great Tribulation. And that we saw that Jesus comes and he takes the church back to heaven with him for those seven years. And of course it's at the rapture that we all get our glorified bodies. So what we're going to turn our attention to now in the next two studies is, okay, we've got the Great Tribulation and the Antichrist going on on earth for this seven years. We've got our glorified bodies. We've zapped back to heaven with Jesus. What are we doing for that seven years? And this is what we're going to start dealing with tonight. And in fact, we're going to be seeing that there are two things that happen to us while we're up there. We're going to deal with the first one tonight and the second one next time. But what we're going to be seeing tonight is what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. Now you'll be familiar with that term. We'll be turning to it in a few moments in the actual Bible. But I just want to lay a little bit of groundwork here because it's the judgment seat of Christ. Now in this series you will have gathered that, that the idea of judgment covers many many different things. God's judgments are not all the same and you've got to sort out what different judgments mean and what their effects and their consequences are. And that three of the judgments we've seen thus far are these. We've seen firstly the judgment on the sin of the world. So there's a judgment that comes upon people as being sinners. Now, because we are Christians, because we have accepted Jesus' free gift, because we've acknowledged that he bore the penalty for our sin, because we are Christians, we are not subject to that judgment. 
That judgment will never touch us because that judgment went on Jesus. So firstly, there's God's judgment upon sin and upon sinners. And, <coughs> and it will only touch those who reject Jesus. All right. So, <coughs> so there's the first judgment, the judgment on sinners. That doesn't apply to us. We've seen a second type of judgment in this series, though, and we saw that now we are Christians, we're members of the family, we're sons of God. And because God is a good father, and because he knows that kids need to be kept just a little bit in line, we've seen that there is, in the Bible, child training, and there is the judgment on us as being sons of God. And that, as we saw, is quite simply that Father knows when to sort his kids out, okay? He knows how to make us grow up into the kind of children that he wants. So then, we've got the judgment on sinners. That doesn't apply to us. We're saved, and anyone who receives Jesus can avoid that as well. We've seen a judgment on us as sons, and that is going on now. That's going on throughout our life on earth. And our deliverance from the judgment of sin is gone. That's past salvation. The judgment on us as sons of God is present salvation. That's going on in the present tense. That's our lot down here. But in the future, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's another judgment that we face. And it's the judgment on us, not as sons, but as servants. Now, if you go to Luke 17, and let's immediately see this in the Bible. Luke 17, and in verse 7. And this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. And he says to them, Will any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink? and afterward you shall eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that is commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now can you see that the teaching here of Jesus always struck me as being a bit hard. I thought, oh, you know, is that going to talk to me like that? It's a bit rotten, isn't it? But of course it's a question that here, Jesus is speaking not of our relationship with him as being his brothers and God being our father. He's speaking of the fact that because we are Christians, we are now servants in the kingdom of God. We are now servants in the Lord's service. And it's very true to say that we are saved, and that primarily is for our benefit. God wanted to rescue us, so he saved us, and that's for us. But it's also true that we have been saved not just for our own good, but we have been saved in order to serve others. So what we're going to be looking at tonight is the role that now we are Christians, we're definitely the sons of God, but also we have a role in which we are to serve God and to serve those around us. And the judgment seat of Christ, as we're going to see, is the time whereby when our service to God now is assessed and it's judged. Alright, if you go to Matthew 20, Matthew chapter 20, 
We'll see this again in verse 25. And again, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Now listen to what he says. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So here we're seeing Jesus is saying to us, right, you're saved, you're in the family, now you must serve me, you must serve those who are around you. Go over to Ephesians 2. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And this is Paul speaking, and he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think you've heard me say this before, that where Paul says here that we are his workmanship, the Greek word there is poema workmanship, and it's in fact the Greek word that we get the word poem from. And it doesn't mean any old workmanship, not like going out and putting up a shed and saying that was my workmanship. This specifically means a work of art workmanship, like a potter, a sculptor, or a painter. And the idea that in art you express yourself. And here Paul is saying we are God's workmanship. We are his poema. We are his work of art. And God wants to express himself through us. Now how does he do it? He does it because beforehand he has prepared good works. And when you got converted, God already, he's got planned all the good things that he wants to do through you. And our responsibility is that we should walk in them. Can you see? God has many opportunities, day by day, wherein we can do good. Now it's up to us whether we walk in those good works or whether we choose not to. But the point is, God's desire is that he express himself through us by us performing good works, by us allowing Jesus to express his practical love through us in our service to other people. And you're remembering the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, sort of like, give thanks, uh, he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can you see? It's through our good works as Christians that the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, is going to be revealed through us to other people. And what we're turning ourselves to tonight is the fact that one day it's going to matter whether we do walk in these good works or whether we choose not to. It's going to matter very much because one day we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now if you go to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we're going to see the references, most of the references in the Bible about this. And 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> I'm just going to read the beginning of verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, just the first bit of verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now there you have it, Paul saying that one day each one of us are going to stand before Jesus and Jesus will be seated on a judgment seat in order that judgment can begin. Now in order to understand it we're going to just read now from verse 1 
in 2 Corinthians 5. Follow it with me, if you will. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now we've dealt with these verses before, and we're seeing here that Paul is talking about the day when one day we're going to lose our mortal bodies and we're going to get our resurrection. He says, while we are still in this tent, we sigh with anxiety, not that we will be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here, Paul is speaking in the context that one day we are going to have glorified bodies. And we've already seen in earlier studies that we receive our glorified bodies, not just us, but all the Christians throughout history have already died. We all get our glorified bodies at the rapture. Therefore, can you see that the context when Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, it is after we've got glorified bodies. Therefore, it is this which is happening during the seven years when we're in heaven and the great tribulation is going on down on earth. Let's keep reading. Let's go to verse 9. Paul says in verse 9, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, sorry, in verse 9 he says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So therefore, can you see, when Paul introduces this subject of the judgment seat of Christ, he immediately introduces the idea of pleasing the Lord. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, it is our service which is going to be judged. Now there's something very important that you must get hold of here because a lot of Christians are frightened of the judgment seat of Christ and they're frightened of it for this reason. They think that if God don't get them now, at least he's got them at the judgment seat of Christ. Now what I want you to understand very clearly is that the judgment seat of Christ is God's judgment on our works it is not a judgment on us personally. This is tremendously important for you to understand. It's not a judgment on us personally to find out how sinful we were once we got converted. It's God's judgment on our service once we got converted. Let's now actually read verse 10 completely. And he says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. Now, at first sight, that does not sound good. That when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, depending on what we've done in our body, i.e. down here, we're either going to receive good or we're going to receive evil. Now, I mean, that's worth a little shudder, don't you think? Well, you'll be pleased to hear me tell you that I'm... I'm reading here from the RSV, and the RSV has got that totally and utterly wrong. Those of you with the King James Bible or the NIV has got it right. I will read you now what the Greek literally says in this verse. It says, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive a recompense with regards to the things done in or through the body, whether good or bad. 
Now, can you see that's slightly different? And what Paul is saying, at the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a recompense depending on whether what we did in our Christian lives was good or whether it was bad. Now, when Paul says here, the judgment seat of Christ, in the Greek, it's the Bema seat, what was called the Bema seat. Now, you'd find the Bema seat in two places in the ancient world. First of all, you'd find it in a law court, where justice had to be done and where the law had to be assessed and justice was seen to be done. But you would also find a Bema seat at the Olympic Games and stuff like that. Because in the ancient world they were really into athletics and stuff like that. And, and, and like the athletes would train for months and months and months and then they'd have the games. Now at the end of the games all the winners would go up on a rostrum to receive their medals for winning. And the rostrum itself was the Beamer seat. It was the judgment seat. And that what we're dealing with here in the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll see it so clearly as we progress, we are not talking about punishment for what you've done right. Sorry, we're not talking about punishment for what you've done wrong because we've seen that Jesus was punished for that. We're talking about reward for what you've done right. Now, can you see, judgment works two ways. Judgment certainly works in ascertaining what was evil and, you know, paying it back. You know, like in a law court, there's judgment and the baddies are thrown into the slammer. There's that aspect of judgment as well. But you have judges at the Olympic Games. You have judges at the Miss World Contest. Not that for one moment I would want you to think I watch such things. But can you see, judgment does have this other side. Not just a sort of recriminations and punishment, but also reward for achievement. And this is what the judgment seat of Christ is all about. Go now to 1 Corinthians 9. We've established so far that the judgment seat of Christ, that we will all stand before it during the seven years after we get our glorified bodies when we are in heaven with Jesus with the great tribulation going on down here. We've seen as well, it's not a judgment on us personally, it's a judgment on our works, on our service. And that it's not a judgment to pay you back or punish you for bad service, it's a judgment which will reward you for any good service that there may have been. Now then, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll start with verse 24. <clears throat> now listen to what Paul says here. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one obtains the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it. We've seen this verse before. Paul says, I'm going to rule my body, I'm not going to let my body rule me. And the reason, he says, left after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now on the basis of this verse, some people teach you can lose your salvation. Again, it's another very bad translation. It's not disqualified at all. The Greek word there is adokimos. Now it's made up of two words. A in the Greek is the negative and dokimos means approved. 
passing the test. And what Paul is saying here, he says, look, I'm going to be like an athlete. I'm, I'm, I'm going to strain to win. He says, I have no intention that when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, after writing epistles and preaching sermons, encouraging other people to be faithful to the Lord, he says, I do not intend to get there only to find that I have failed the test. Can you see? That I am found to be not worthy of receiving a reward for myself. So there again you have Paul saying, I intend that eventually when I stand before Jesus at the judgment seat, that my Christian life is going to be approved by him rather than rejected by him. And if you just go into Romans 14, and we'll very quickly just have a look at the other verse where you actually get the name, the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14... 10 to 12. <clears throat> Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or the judgment seat of God. So there you have the other named reference to it. Now if you go to 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll start now... So have a look at the passages in the Bible where we get more details about it, where we can find out how it exactly works. 1 Corinthians 3. Now again, we're going to start reading at verse 5 because we've got to see the context. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5. Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, you see, the Corinthians, they're saying, oh, I follow Paul, and someone else is saying, I'm a policies man, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And Paul says, it's crazy, it's crazy, we're only men. And he says, we are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos waters, so Paul's saying, I led you to Christ, Apollos then stepped in and pastored you, but he says, for heaven's sake, it was God who did it. And he says... So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are equal, and each shall receive his wages according to his labour. Now can you see the context of these verses is Paul is talking about service. And, I mean, wages are a reward, aren't they? I mean, you go to work and you do it because you're rewarded with money at the end of it, or you wouldn't do it. So Paul says there's going to come a time when we are going to be rewarded according to the faithfulness of our service. And in verse 9 he says, For we are fellow workers for God. Can you see, the context here is works. It's our service, not us personally. It's what we do for the Lord, now we are converted. He says we are God's fellow workers. Workers, and he says, you are God's field and God's building. Now just remember, log up, that Paul there likens believers to a field. Now let's get into verse 10. We've seen the context and now we'll see some of the details about what happens when we actually get there at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, according to the commission of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, 
Each man's work will become manifest. For the day, and this day is the judgment seat of Christ, the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now let's go through this verse by verse. All right. Now in verse 11, what Paul is saying, he says, look, the foundation has been laid, and obviously the foundation of everything is Jesus himself. And what we're going to say, see is that Paul says, right, now we're Christians, now we're in the Lord's service, we've got the foundation, it's Jesus himself. He says, but there are different ways in which you can build on that salvation. And we're going to see that what this means is there are two ways that you can live your Christian life. Now let's actually see what these ways are. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation, and there are two groupings here, the first one is this, gold, silver, precious stones. Now this is the first way you can build on your Christian life. Now in the Bible it's generally accepted by people who know the Bible that gold in the scripture is always representative of God the Father, God himself. Silver is always representative of the work that Jesus did in redeeming us. All right. So we've got gold, God the Father. We've got silver, Jesus the Redeemer, Jesus the Son. Now, if you go to 1 Peter 3, keep your finger in the 1 Corinthians, but just go to 1 Peter 3, and there's just one little thing that Peter says here that is quite interesting. 1 Peter 3 and verse 4. Now, he's speaking about women here. He's saying what Christian women should be as opposed to what they shouldn't be. And what he says this, he says... Let it be, now he's speaking about women, he says, Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now can you see that Peter there, he uses the idea of a jewel or a precious stone to represent a woman's spirit. Now what I'm going to do is that having established that gold and silver, God the Father and God the Son, I'm straining a little bit here that the precious stones represent the Holy Spirit. And can you see that as the Lord is leading us through our Christian lives, in actual fact the whole Trinity is involved in it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think I'm straining that a little, go to 1 Corinthians 12. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 5. But in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, there's something very interesting he says. We'll start reading at verse 4. He says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. There are varieties of working, Sorry, that there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and of course Jesus is Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them in everyone. Now can you see in those verses there, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, you might think sometimes that praying in tongues is a very humble thing to do. The entire Trinity is working in you to enable you to do that. And exactly the same way, in our Christian lives, it takes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together working through us in order to make us into the kind of people that we should be. 
So therefore, there's category number one. Paul is saying, right, laying a foundation, all right, on Jesus. He says you're converted. But now you're saved, you've got to live the Christian life. He says, here's the first way you can do it. He says you can let God do it through you. Alright? Let's move on to the second category. Wood, hay and stubble. Now, if I'm maintaining that gold and silver and precious stones represent God himself, what do you think wood, hay and stubble represents? I'll tell you, that's us in our own strength, isn't it? Now, can you see there are two ways of living the Christian life. We can either live it ourselves or we can let God <coughs> live through us. We can either try and do good things in our own strength, which is mere wood, hay and stubble, as we're going to see, it's unenduring, or we can allow Jesus to live his life through us. And what we're going to see is that the judgment seat of Christ is that occasion where it's going to be sorted out once and for all exactly in our Christian lives what was just us doing it for Jesus in our own strength and what was in fact Jesus being able to live his life through us verse 13 each man's work will become manifest can you see our Christian lives our service to God since we got converted it's all going to be kind of laid open for what it is at the judgment seat of Christ it says for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done so can you see it's going to sort out whether our Christian lives, or to what extent our Christian lives, were us allowing Jesus to live through us, or merely us trying to do things for Jesus in our own strength. So at the judgment seat of Christ, all our works are, as it were, going to be, you know, sort of put there, and it's going to be tested by fire. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that it's going to be fire, because fire is always God's means of judgment. Let's go back to the three aspects of judgment we saw earlier. We saw that there was God's judgment on sinners. That doesn't apply to us. We're saved. But unbelievers, what happens to them when they die? Initially, they go down into Hades, and there's fire there, and then eventually... At right at the end, at the great white throne judgment, they're raised from the dead and then cast into the lake of fire. That judgment is by fire. We've seen judgment on us as sons. Father disciplines his children. And when the early church were baptised with the Spirit, what happened? There was a sound like the wind, representing power, but there was tongues of fire representing God's judgment, i.e. God's going to sort out our sin in our lives because we're his children. So again, you see judgment on us as sons also as fire. So it's no surprise here that the judgment on us as servants at the judgment seat of Christ is also going to be by fire. Now let's go down to verse 14. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, try and give you a picture of how it works. I always picture it like this. You all know uh, sort of Dick Whittington, all right? You know, sort of 
trudging along and he's got his pole and he's got his handkerchief and everything he's got is in it. Now, I want you to picture that, that sort of when you approach the judgment seat of Christ, that what happens, you've got your pole, just like old Dick had, all right, and you've got this big bundle. And that big bundle is all your service since you got a Christian. It's all the good things you did, your service to Jesus, seeing as you were a disciple. Now, what needs to be discovered is this. What was just you in the flesh, which is worthless, and what was of Jesus, which is of eternal value? And what happens is, picture that there's this kind of a big bonfire or a stove, you see. Now what you do is you walk over and the stove is open, you see. And by the way, don't have any worries about sort of old so-and-so, perhaps thinking, oh, we've got him now, he's going to be laid bare, exposed for what he was in front of everyone. No, it's not like that at all, because the picture is that you put your bag with your Christian life, all your works and your service, in the fire, you see. Now, what happens to all the wood, hay and stubble? Well, it's all burned up, it's gone. Everything that was just of you, everything that was just us in the flesh doing things for Jesus and stuff like that, well, that's all burned up. It's gone. No one sees it. There won't be anyone saying, oh, terrible. Oh, you know, it's, it's not like that. It's burned up. It's completely gone. But what's left? I'll tell you, everything that Jesus did through you, the gold and the silver and the precious stones, that is left in your little bag, all right? And it's been tested, that is what was of Jesus. Now, get the picture here, because, you see, you'll have some Christians who sort of march up, and they'll be smirking, and they've got this ginormous bag. I mean, they can hardly carry it, because they've been so busy for God. Oh, they didn't stop, you know. And they're going to march up. You see how they brought the wheelbarrow for their reward, you know. And they're going to march up. And in it goes, in the oven, you see. And when they pull the stick out, there might be half a diamond. And they're suddenly going to realise that 99% of their Christian lives was them doing things in their own strength. Absolutely valueless. And that little half a diamond was the only thing they got right. They got saved, can you see? But there may be someone else who walks up with an ever tiny little bag. And everyone might think, woof. Not very impressive, is it? And they stick it in the fire and it all comes out because it's solid gold. Can you see? Because God's judgments are fair. He doesn't judge on appearances or anything like that at all. So that can you see that at this judgment, what you're going to have left at the end of it is that everything that was just us in our own strength. And remember what Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. Shall I tell you one of our biggest problems? We just don't believe that. We just don't believe that, do we? We carry on doing, 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 busy, busy, busy. Well, I'll tell you, at the judgment seat of Christ, some of us might get a rude awakening. And we will eventually believe at last that we could do nothing apart from Jesus. Because we're going to see everything we did for him burned up, going up in a frazzle. Because it was valueless, because it was only us doing it. And yet, that which was genuinely Jesus doing it through us, then that is going to be left, the gold, the silver and the precious stones, and it's going to be quite obvious. Now, do you know what's going to happen next? And this is marvellous. You see, the thing is that we're seeing, and we have in this series, that the Christian life isn't what we do for Jesus, it's what Jesus has done for us, and what he wants to do through us, all right? And that there are two ways of living the Christian life. You can do it, or you can let Jesus do it. Now, the thing is, 
that all these things that are left, the gold and the silver and the precious stones, that will be what Jesus did through us. It won't be what we did, it will be what Jesus did through us. Now, the incredible thing is this, the judgment seat of Christ is a seat for rewards. We're going to be rewarded for what Jesus did through us. And that sounds a bit crazy, isn't it? Because after all, if you do something, you ought to get the reward. But the judgment seat of Christ, all that's going to be left is what Jesus did through us. And you think, well, Jesus did it, why is he rewarding us? And you hit up against one of the lovely things about God's character. Because the Bible says that God is no man's debtor. Now the point is this, all those genuinely good things, they weren't what we did, they were what Jesus did. But do you know what he's going to do? He's going to turn around and he says, I know it was me who did them. He says, but you did let me do them through you. You lent me your body. You lent me yourself. Here, I want to pay you for it. And can you see that everything that the Lord genuinely was able to do through us, we are actually going to be rewarded for. Now then, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Well, what does that mean? Quite simply, that which was simply us in the flesh, you don't get reward for that. It's gone. You suffer loss. This is nothing to do with losing salvation. There is nothing to fear about the judgment seat of Christ. But because of the type of Lord the Lord is, he is not going to be anyone's debtor. Therefore, anything he has been able to accomplish through us, he's going to reward us for. And it's the judgment seat of Christ and this judgment by fire of our works that's going to decide exactly what we receive by way of reward. Just go to Philippians when Paul writes to the Philippian church. Because this should spur us on. In Philippians chapter 3, we'll start reading from verse 7. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as refuse. And, I mean, in the King James, in the AV, it's dung. That's much, it's much better translation. Bible translators do, they're rather, they're prudes, and God isn't. God isn't. If God thinks something is excrement, he will say it. You don't dress it up refuse, like ugh, throwing away an old packet of daz or something. It's dung, alright? Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things, I count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Go down to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can you see that Paul is looking forward? He's, he's surging on. He knows that there's purpose. I mean, it does matter whether we're lackadaisical Christians or whether we're committed Christians. It doesn't matter in the sense of, God, you know, does God love you? Because God is our Father. He loves us just the way we are. 
And you can be a backslidden Christian, you can be what you like as a Christian. If you're saved, you're saved. It won't affect how God loves you. But can you see there is purpose in really staying close to the Lord? Because one day we are going to be rewarded. And that reward is going to come from the hand of Jesus himself. And my goodness, isn't it a marvellous prospect to think that one day Jesus will hold out his hand to you and he will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That, that's a spur to me, but I shudder to think what it might be like, as it will be for some. When they're there, they're saved, nothing can change that. But there is no well done, thou good and faithful servant for them, because they didn't do anything. Can you see? They were lackadaisical in their faith. They didn't stay close to the Lord. Well, I know what I want to be. I want to try, like Paul, I want to press on. And he says, I forget what lies behind. Why did Paul forget what lies behind? Well, because all he could see was his failure. I'm not, I'm not going to get depressed with all my failure that I can see in the past. Jesus has dealt with that. I want to look ahead. I want to press on. Go now to Hebrews. Because now that we're doing this whole thing about the judgment seat of Christ, we're in a position now to go through a couple of passages in the book to the Hebrews, which are frequently taken as saying that the Bible teaches that you can lose your salvation. Now, throughout this course, I've maintained you can't, and we will end this series with special studies given over for that one purpose, to demonstrate that salvation can't be lost. But we're now in a position to understand what these actual verses mean and to see that it is nothing to do with losing salvation at all. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, I'm just going to read verse 1. He says... Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, I just want you to get that. The context of this is that the writer is saying, look, you should, have, you should understand by now that there can be dead works. You've got to repent of them. He says, let's not have to keep going over this again and again and again. Now, go down into verse 4. He says... For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have come, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Now we can understand that now. What you've got to, to bear in mind, there are some difficult passages in the letter to the Hebrews. But they're only difficult when you fail to realise who the letter was written to. It was written to Christians who were also Jews. They had been converted from Judaism and now they were Christians. Now, you see, here we've got a group of Christians and what's happened is that they've fallen away and that what the writer is saying, that because they're crucifying the Son of God, 
on their own account and holding him up to contempt. It is therefore impossible to restore them to repentance. And this is why people say, look, there you are, if you're a Christian, if you fall away, that's it, you've lost your salvation. Now, you've got to understand who these guys are and the particular problem that the writer was addressing when he wrote to them. Now, for the, the Jews who got converted during the time of the early church, one of the biggest problems they faced was that to become a Christian meant rejection from their fellow Jews. And the biggest temptation to them was to go back into Judaism. Remembering that the whole of the Old Testament, Judaism itself, was only ever given by God as a massive picture in advance as to what one day Messiah was going to do for them. And when Messiah, the reality, came, then the whole Old Testament system was no longer needed. It had done its job. It led up to Jesus. And once Jesus came, everything in the Old Testament just fell away. There was no need for it anymore because it was merely a load of pictures representing what one day Messiah would come and do. So you see, these guys, they're under this great pressure to go back into Judaism. And this is precisely what some of them had done. Remember in the first verse, the writer talks about repentance from dead works. And of course, from the teaching of the New Testament, we know that Judaism was precisely that. It was dead works. Judaism as itself couldn't help or save anybody. It was only there to lead up to Jesus. And now, at the time of writing, Jesus has come. And if you go into verse 4, when he says it's impossible to restore again to repentance. Now, what's the context? The context is, as we've seen in verse 1, repentance from dead works. Now, what he's saying is, look, when you get people who go back into the dead works of Judaism, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance from it as long as they cling on to it and won't let it go. Now, what you've got here is quite simply this. We know that these people the writer's talking about are genuine Christians. You've got that bit, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. These guys are definitely believers. But they are Christians who have returned to Judaism. Now, under Judaism, under the Old Testament law, when you sinned and were out of fellowship with God, how did you get back into fellowship with God? You went down to the temple and you sacrificed a lamb. And that lamb atoned for your sin. Now we know from the New Testament that the Old Testament lamb that was sacrificed was only a picture of Jesus who was to come. And that now Jesus has died, there's no need for lamb sacrifices because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And we know as Christians that if we, you know, when we sin and get out of fellowship with God, the way we get back into fellowship is on the basis of 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. So, if you sin, you fall away, alright, if you get out of fellowship with God, you get back into fellowship with God simply by confessing your sins on the basis of the death of Jesus as your sacrificial lamb. But what these guys were doing, because they, I mean, they were following the Lord, but they'd gone back into Judaism and they had a mishmash of Christianity and Judaism. Now, they knew, because they were Christians, that they were sinners. And they knew that every time they sinned, they had to get back in fellowship with God. 
But you see, the thing is, because they'd gone back into Judaism, they weren't getting back in fellowship with God on the basis of confession of sin. They were going down the temple and they were sacrificing lambs. And they were trying to get back into fellowship with God on the basis of the Judaistic lamb sacrifices. Now, can you see, their problem is this. Say one day they sin, blow up, have a row with their wife or something like that. They're out of fellowship with God. Now, the only way that they can get back in fellowship with God is simply confessing their sin on the basis of the death of Jesus. 1 John 1 verse 9, confess your sins. But instead, what these guys are doing, they're dashing down the temple to sacrifice a lamb. Now, the point is this. Lamb sacrifices never did get anyone in fellowship with God. They were only there to picture the coming and the death of Jesus himself. So they sin, they're out of fellowship with God. They are then trying to get back into fellowship with God using a way that doesn't work, that God doesn't recognise. So can you see that the writer to the Hebrews is saying, look, as long as they're trying to restore themselves to fellowship with God by doing lamb sacrifices in the temple, as long as they insist on doing that, you cannot help them. Because they refuse to take the one road that's any good for them. They won't just confess their sins. They insist on doing lamb sacrifices. Now look, he says, they fall away since they commit apostasy. He says, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. Now can you see, they're making lamb sacrifices. The lamb sacrifice was only ever there as a picture of Jesus. So the lamb sacrifice in the temple was the picture of Jesus. After Jesus has died and been raised again from the dead, these guys go back into Judaism. And can you see, every time they do a lamb sacrificing, they're as good as crucifying Jesus again. Can you see the point? And the writer to the Hebrews is simply saying, look, as long as you insist on trying to get right with God through Judaism and the lamb sacrifices, he says, to that extent, it is impossible for you to get back into fellowship with God. Because he says, the only way you can get back into fellowship with God is to simply confess your sins, acknowledging that Jesus has died. But you see, for these guys, the death of Jesus wasn't enough. They wanted their lamb sacrifices as well. So we simply have that if you do lamb sacrifices as these Jewish Christians were doing, that meant there was no way that they could get back into fellowship with God. Therefore, it was impossible to restore them to repentance because repentance is through confession of sin. These guys wouldn't just repent and confess their sins. They had to go down and do a lamb sacrifice, the very thing that got them out of fellowship with God in the first place. So that's the group of Christians that the writer is speaking about. Now, go down into verse 7. Listen what he says about it. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth for vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Now, do you remember in 1 Corinthians, I already showed you that Paul said, you are God's field. And the writer is now using the illustration of believers as being God's field in order to introduce the judgment seat of Christ. Can you see here exactly how he does it? He compares believers to a field, God's field. 
Now, the idea of a field is that a farmer sows his seed on the field and he wants to get fruit from it. He wants to get a little bit of produce, all right? So then, uh, God provides everything that these believers need. They have Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit, they have everything they need in order to produce fruit, in order to produce good works. And therefore, they can bring forth vegetation, the fruit of the Spirit, that's useful to God because it brings glory to God. And it says, for those who do that, they receive a blessing from God. There is your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But look at verse 8. But if they bear thorns and thistles, thorns and thistles, wood, hay and stubble. Can you see? Because these Christians are totally back under the law, totally gone back into Judaism, there is no way they can produce any fruit for God because all they've got is self-effort, because they've put themselves back under the Jewish law and therefore have got themselves out of fellowship with God. Therefore, all their Christian lives are producing are thorns and thistles, wood, hay and stubble. All right. And it says, it is worthless. So the produce of these believers, remember he's using the picture of believers being a field, the crop growing through these believers, of, you know, these Jewish believers who went back into the Old Testament law, I mean, all they're bringing up is thorns and thistles. It's of no good to anyone at all. And it says, if they bear thorns and thistles, it is worthless. Worthless, that's our word, adokimos. They fail to meet the test and are near to being cursed. Now, why is that? Well, we've seen in an earlier study, Galatians 3.10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And because these Jewish Christians have gone back into Judaism, they've put themselves under a curse because they've gone back to the works of the law, therefore they're out of fellowship with God. So because they're out of fellowship with God, Jesus can't do anything through them, so they're not producing a really nice harvest in the field of their lives. All they're producing is thorns and thistles. And it's worthless. It doesn't pass the test at the judgment seat of Christ because it's simply what they are doing in their own strength. And then we have, it is worthless, near to being cursed, its end is to be burned. Now again, can you see how some people try and use this verse and they say these, you know, if you fall away you'll end up being thrown into the lake of fire. Remember the picture, believers being likened to a field on which crops are growing. Now for years I lived in Suffolk. And one of the things that you get very used to when you live out in the sticks like I used to, is stubble burning. Because when a farmer has harvested, he's got all the good stuff in, goes around with the old combine harvester, and what's left at the end of the day is all the useless stuff he doesn't want. Do you know what he does? He sets fire to it. But it's not the field that burns, it's the wood, hay and stubble, it's the useless stuff that is burned up. So here, can you see, it's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, and that unless these guys get their act together a bit and get out of Judaism and back into fellowship with the Lord, then all they're going to produce by way of works is wood, hay and stubble, and it's all going to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ, and they are going to simply lose out on the reward that they could have had if only they had stayed in fellowship with Jesus. Go over into Hebrews 10 because there's another section of verses in Hebrews which again is used by some to try and say you can lose your salvation. And in fact we're going to see that it's referring to exactly the same group of people. 
Remember, what are they doing? They're Christians, but they've gone back into Judaism. They're trying to stay in fellowship with God by doing lamb sacrifices in the temple rather than simply accepting that the death of Jesus was enough. Now, in Hebrews 10, I mean, it's like if you sort of go through from, from verse 3, he says, but these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. It's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Go down into verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, he's been talking about these guys in chapter 6. He's still talking about them, and he's outlining in depth the teaching that they need in order to see that the making lamb sacrifices is absolute folly, and that it's not doing anything for them at all. The death of Jesus is enough. This is the context. Now, verse 26, he says, For if we sin deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now then, what is the deliberate sin they're doing? They're going down to the temple and they're doing lamb sacrifices, even though they've been taught that it's wrong to do so. So therefore, he says, look, if you keep doing this, he says there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Because the point is, if they're going to make lamb sacrifices, they're rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, if the sacrifice of Jesus is the only one that matters, and they reject it and do lamb sacrifices, can you see? They're left without a sacrifice. They've refused to, 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 to receive the benefit of the only sacrifice that's any good for them. They're doing the lamb sacrifices, they've rejected the proper sacrifice, that of the death of Jesus, and therefore, he simply says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He says, can't you see, you blokes... It's crazy. You can never get back in fellowship with God, he says, because the only sacrifice that can do it, the death of Jesus, isn't good enough for you. You want to do it through lamb sacrifices. He says you can't, and you're going to stay out of fellowship with, with God until your dying day if you don't stop doing it. And then in 27, he says, But a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Gets heavy now. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what's he going on about here? Well, you see, what he's going on about is this. The early church knew, because Jesus had told them in a prophecy, that the time would soon come when Rome was going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Now, because Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the judgment that came upon them was that God cut them out of his plan, and remember, they're going to be brought back in the last days, but God cut them out of his plan and and then he brought the Romans in eventually to destroy Israel, destroy the temple and Jerusalem, so that Israel once again weren't in their own land. So this was God's judgment on Israel for rejecting Jesus. 
Now, the early church knew that that time was going to come. And Jesus had given them warning, and he said, when you see the Roman troops surrounding Jerusalem, he says, in that day, Scarpa. Now, the point is this, the judgment of God was coming on Israel because Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But, of course, the judgment was not coming on Israelites who had got converted because they weren't under judgment. And the way they could escape was that Jesus told them in advance, when you see the Romans coming, Scarpa, and you'll be all right, all right? You'll know in advance what they're going to do. So the point is this. God's judgment is going to fall on his people. The Lord will judge his people. Who are his people? Israel you see. So they knew that a fearful judgment was God from God was going to fall on Israel because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. All the Christians would be okay because they weren't under judgment, they were saved, because they knew about it in advance and as soon as they saw the Romans coming they could flee Jerusalem, therefore they would be safe, they wouldn't be caught up in the judgment. At least all the believers, that is, except one group, because the problem that the writer to the Hebrews has here is a group of Christians who have got in bondage to lamb sacrifices. Now the problem is this. In order to do lamb sacrifices, you've got to do it in the temple. And because you've got to be doing it quite regularly, you can't go far from Jerusalem. Therefore, when the Roman troops surrounded Jerusalem, all the Christians would flee except these guys because they have to stay in the temple. And what the writer is warning them against, he says, for heaven's sake, he says, the very Judaism that you've gone back into, God is going to judge it. The Romans are coming to destroy it. And he says, if you go back into it, you are going to be destroyed in that judgment because you'll have to stay near the temple to do your precious lamb sacrifices. Now, we can see that he's talking about the same guys. In verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God? Well, of course they have. They've said the death of Jesus alone isn't enough. We need lamb sacrifices as well. And he says, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Profaned the blood because the blood of Jesus was enough. These guys want blood of lambs and bulls and goats as well. And then he says, outraged the spirit of grace. Why? Because we're saved by grace. Not by what we do, but by what Jesus did. These believers are back into doing their bit for Jesus and thinking that they're going to be close to Jesus because of what they do. And that's the opposite of grace. That's not salvation by grace, that's salvation by works. Therefore, these guys, because of their bondage to lamb sacrifices, would have been caught up in the sacking of Jerusalem when it eventually came in AD 70. And so, therefore, the writer to the Hebrews, it's a last-ditch attempt to get them to repent so that they were free to get out of Jerusalem so they wouldn't be there when God's judgment came on Israel. So the point is, if they didn't repent of all this lamb sacrifice stuff, then they would be caught up in that judgment. But not because God was punishing them, they were saved. But simply because they were in the same place when God's judgment fell. For instance, if Lot hadn't got out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he would have been killed in God's judgment. But God warned him and said, get out, Lot. 
Can you see? This is who these guys are talking about. And the writer is doing two things. He's trying to persuade them firstly to see that if they don't repent of it, they're going to get caught in the slaughter that was going to happen in AD 70 in Jerusalem and in the temple. And secondly, he says, as long as you go on with this, you're going to have no reward at the judgment seat of Christ because all you're producing is thorns and thistles, i.e., wood, hay and stubble and so therefore he's saying you've got to repent, you've got to get out from under the law and you've got to get back simply trusting in Jesus and forget about the Judaism that Jesus has rescued you out of so there we see those references and I think you can see they're nothing to do with losing your salvation they're to do more, far more with the judgment seat of Christ and the eventual rewards that we get for anything that the Lord is able to accomplish through us. Now there's just one or two other things that I want to clear up about the judgment seat of Christ. Because a lot of Christians who, I mean, many people have it clear in their minds that it's, it's rewards and not punishment. We've seen this. But a lot of Christians still have a funny idea about the rewards itself. And for instance, you've got a real problem, or some people have, because they think they think, well, I, I haven't done anything dramatic for God. I, I haven't come up with anything sensational. There won't be much for me there, will it? And what I want to show you now is that the way in which God assesses our Christian lives is not by results. It's by faithfulness. This is tremendously important. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and listen to something that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns, or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Now Jesus introduces a tremendously important principle here. And the principle is this. How do you test whether or not the Lord is moving through somebody? How do you do it? How do you ascertain whether or not God is with somebody and someone is being a faithful believer and disciple of Jesus? And the test that Jesus gives is you'll know them by their fruit. Now we've made a terrible mistake in the church because we've totally misunderstood what, fr what fruit means. We have made it results. We have said by their results, you'll know them. Now that is not what Jesus is meaning here. If Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, how can we ascertain what fruit is? The Bible is its own interpreter. Go to Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, we actually have a definition of what this fruit that Jesus was talking about was. Galatians 5.22 the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Now can you see from this that the fruit, the test of a genuine 
committed Christian life is the quality of that person's life. It's not results. It doesn't read the fruit of the Spirit is leading people to Jesus, casting demons out, healing the sick, having words of knowledge, getting visions. Absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul outlines a chapter. He hands it over totally to establish one thing. That you can speak in tongues, you can have visions, you can heal the sick, you can cast out demons, you can do it, all that stuff without any love at all. And he says it's valueless. The test is fruit. And fruit is always quality of life. Results are quite secondary and are irrelevant. Now, if you think about it, this has got to be the case. If the judgment seat of Christ was going to be decided by the results we got, well, then people like Billy Graham have got a bit of an unfair advantage, haven't they? I mean, I know Christians who think like this. They think that for every person they bring to Jesus, that there's another kind of jewel in their crown when they get to the judgment seat of Christ. That is absolutely crazy. And the reason it's crazy is because Billy Graham would have an incredibly unfair advantage, wouldn't he? I mean, Billy Graham has been used in such a way by God that he's preached to more people than any person living. Therefore, he has seen more Christians converted under his ministry than anyone else. But you see, the point is, if he was going to be rewarded for his ministry, well, that would be really unfair for other people who aren't called to an upfront ministry like that. Can you see it's crazy? And what you've got to understand about the judgment seat of Christ is that what is assessed is our faithfulness to Jesus. You are not going to get commissioned for miracles. Alright? It's not a commission basis, the judgment seat of Christ. It's faithfulness. And for instance, Billy Graham's reward at the judgment seat of Christ will be nothing to do with the results he's got. Billy Graham's reward at the judgment seat of Christ will be decided purely by his faithfulness to the life that God wanted him to lead. Can you see? Because some, some Christians never lead anyone to Jesus. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. I mean, okay, yeah, some Christians deliberately wouldn't. They're not interested. I'm talking about that. But there are believers who never lead anyone to Jesus. Well, all that means is you've never actually met someone who was ready to get converted. That's all. That's not your fault. We're judged on our faithfulness to Jesus, not results. And this is tremendously important because today the emphasis that we place on people, I mean, it's like if you get a guy who's got a ministry of the working of miracles, well, I mean, step back in amazement. Whatever he says must be true. My goodness, he healed a leper last week. Well, many false prophets heal the sick. Now, I'm not saying that people who have got miraculous ministry are all false prophets. But what I'm saying, we've got to get this into perspective. You test people, one, by the word of God, and secondly, by the quality of their lives, not by the results that they get. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists out all the miracles you can work whilst not having an ounce of love in you. You can work miracles whilst being actually out of fellowship with God. The test is never results. At the judgment seat of Christ, we are going to be assessed for and rewarded for our faithfulness. On the building site, at school, doing the dishes for mum and dad, at work, spending time with our, you know, our neighbours, helping them, doing the practical things. 
I mean, like, for instance, remember in regards to giving, Jesus said, give, give secretly. Don't let your right hand know what you're doing. If you give money away in such a way that everyone knows, oh, aren't they committed? Do you know what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He says they have their reward. They've got it now. The reason being that what the Pharisees wanted was the praises of men. Now, we should want the praises of God. Now, if you want the praises of men, and you're one of these very upfront Christians, always impressing people and making sure everyone knows how much you pray and how long you study the Bible and all the, you know, always trying to impress people. Well, shall I tell you what you're going to get? You're, you're going to get the praises of gullible Christians, you are. They're going to think you're great. And that'll be your lot. You won't, you know, there won't be anything for you at the judgment seat of Christ. Because you can have your reward down here if you want. Personally, I'd rather forego the praises of men down here and have a well done thou good and faithful servant from Jesus. Can you see? Because, I mean, the frowns of a few people, well, I mean, that doesn't compare to having Jesus' smile. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm not fussed what I say, as long as what I say is of the Bible. I mean, that's why it doesn't matter if, if, you, if you lose your reputation. It doesn't matter. What people think of you doesn't matter. What Jesus thinks of you is all important. And it's what Jesus thinks of our service at the judgment seat of Christ that we are going to be rewarded for. So then, let's very quickly now, because we've got more studies coming on this, just go to Revelation 19 and let's very quickly ask ourselves, right, so what then are the rewards? What form are these rewards, any rewards we get at the judgment seat of Christ, what is it actually going to be? I mean, let's face it, when you've got your glorified body, uh, I mean, it's not a lot of good, you know, the Lord's sort of slipping you a tenner. You know, can, can you see, there's, there's, there's nowhere to spend it in heaven. And by the time we get back down to earth anyway, and our glorified bodies, I mean, lack of monetary resources won't stop us from doing anything at all. We'll be just like Jesus. So what is the nature of the rewards that we receive from the judgment seat of Christ? Well, in fact, they take two forms. Next week, we'll be doing a study that will be looking at the first form of reward, and the week after, we'll be doing a study looking at the second form of reward. Now, in Revelations 19, we get the first one, all right? And in Revelation 19, you actually have the second coming. Revelation 19 is... You're at the end of the seven years when we're up in heaven. The tribulation is beginning to terminate on earth. It's all coming up to a climax. We've all been before the judgment seat of Christ. We've got our rewards, all right? And then at the end of the seven years while we're in heaven, just prior to the actual second coming, all right, it's at that, that point you get the second coming, and then immediately prior to Jesus coming back and us with him, you get the marriage of the, of the church to Jesus. Now that's what we're doing next week. We'll be seeing that there's a marriage going to take place in heaven at the end of these seven years. And it's going to be us being married to Jesus. And we'll be seeing what that means. But here, we're right up where the judgment seat of Christ is over. It's just prior to the wedding of the church to the Lamb. Now look in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
Now the righteous deeds, that's what's been decided at the judgment seat of Christ. So we will be dressed up. I mean, you know what it's like when you get your togs on. I mean, you've all seen me when I've got my togs on. No, I know you haven't, but it looks quite good. I'll show you one day. Really, the extent to which we're going to be spruced up for the marriage to Jesus just prior to the second coming, is going to be dependent on our faithfulness to Jesus, as shown at the judgment seat of Christ. So we're going to receive our apparel for the wedding of the church to Jesus. But then secondly, the second form of reward, and this is, this is the real business one, okay, if you go to 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, And if you find chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 5, he says, an athlete, now remember we've seen Paul use the, the picture of the athlete, and that the athlete, he, he trains in order to win the prize, and that Paul likened the Christian life to being preparation for a race, you know, running the race so that we win the prize at the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, an athlete is not crowned until he competes according to the, uh, unless he completes according to the rules. Now notice that an athlete gets crowned. Now go over into chapter 4 and in verse 7 to 8. And this was just before Paul was expecting to, to, to go home and to be with the Lord. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now what's that? Judgment seat of Christ. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. His appearing is the rapture. But here's the point. The common thing in both those verses is a crown. And Paul says there's a crown of righteousness. Paul was looking forward to receiving his reward at the judgment seat of Christ in the form of a crown. Now what does a crown represent? I'll tell you, a crown represents authority. A crown represents a king. A crown represents reigning and ruling as a king. Go over into Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, We'll be back on this in more detail in the next two studies. But in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, this is Jesus speaking. He says, He who conquers and keeps my works until the end, notice that, keeps my works until the end, the judgment of works, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself receive power from my Father. Now, where it says here, he who conquers, probably in most of your Bibles, it says he who overcomes. Yes? Is that right? Now, there's a really, really sort of naff teaching that's, that's been going around for yonks and yonks now. And, and it's to say that these bits, the he who overcomes, these are the special believers. These are the really committed believers, you see. And, of course, all us ragamuffins, because I've never been able to class myself in all honesty higher than that as a Christian. All us ragamuffins, we're kind of, you know, but the overcomers. Now, the, these are the guys four hours a day in prayer, you know, this kind of thing. And that they are going to rule with Jesus and all us lot. You know, we get left behind and we go through the tribulation and the Antichrist sort of kicks 
hell out of us and you know this is the teaching the overcomers and they're a special class of Christian now then the word here for he who conquers or overcomes the Greek word is Nikaio now can we find out what Jesus means by an overcomer remember this letter that Jesus sent is all being written down by John the Apostle and this word Nikaio it means to overcome now keep your finger in Revelation chapter 2 and go to 1 John 5 because John in his epistle uses exactly the same word and by reading this we can actually define what an overcomer is because if the overcomers are going to rule with Jesus then I want to be one alright so I, I better find out what one is hadn't I so 1 John 5 now then well let's start in verse 4 for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. There's our word, Nikaio. Whatever is born of God, I'm born of God. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who are the overcomers? I'll tell you. Someone who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Every Christian is an overcomer. Because the mere fact that we've received Jesus and we're in him means that we have overcome the world. So when we read this bit here in Revelation about he who overcomes or he who conquers, it's a synonym for Christians. This applies to all of us. Now then, therefore, what's going to happen one day? We will receive power over the nations. We will rule as with a rod of iron. Go to the next chapter, Revelation 3 and 21 Jesus says he who conquers there's Nikaio overcome he who overcomes that's all of us who are Christians I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down what have we got when is this reigning what what is this ruling the nations with a rod of iron go to the end of Revelation and chapter 20 because in this reigning with Christ we're going to be joined by all the believers who died during the millennium because remember uh, during the great tribulation because remember even though the church is taken at the rapture people get converted and the world is re-evangelized now at verse 4 I saw thrones and seating on, seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image so these are the believers in the tribulation who got martyred they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years and then the end of verse 6, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and they shall reign with him a thousand years. When Jesus comes, returns at the second coming and us with him, he reigns on earth for a thousand years. Jesus rules the earth from Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is finally established. Jesus reigns over the world himself personally from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, he doesn't choose to do it all alone because he's chosen to be partners with his church, with believers. And that what we've seen is this. We are going to reign with Christ during the thousand-year reign. We are going to be designated certain parts of the world over which we, as Jesus' helpers, have authority. 
It is the judgment seat of Christ, the assessment of our faithfulness in this life, which is going to decide the extent of the authority that we are given during the millennium and the thousand year reign of Christ. So can you see the extent of our faithfulness now is going to decide the extent of our authority reigning with Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. So the question is this. Someone during the thousand year reign of Christ has got to be over Neesden. If you don't want it to be you, be a faithful believer. Be a believer now. Can you see? I've booked him for Miami. I don't want Neesden. I don't want Harold Hill. But can you see? The extent of our reign is decided by our faithfulness now. And you know what the possible tragedy is? The tragedy are going to be believers, Christians, who during the thousand year reign of Christ are having hardly any authority whatsoever because they were so faithless to the Lord down here. So then, the size of your crown, the extent of the authority that Jesus will give you over the earth when he's reigning for that thousand years depend on our faithfulness to him now. Not our results, not our results, not our achievements, our faithfulness to him in whatever way he is leading us. We'll be back to that, the study after next, when we will be looking at the whole question of the millennium and what we'll be doing in it. But next time, we'll be looking at more detail on the fact that there's going to be a marriage in heaven at, right at the end of this seven years after the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to see exactly what it means that the church is going to be married to Jesus. And in doing that, we're going to be able to understand parables of Jesus, which absolutely mystify most people. And, uh, well, the things that people make them mean is absolutely crazy. Next time, we'll see very clearly what they do mean. So we'll leave it there.